Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Harry Glorikian, a global business expert, healthcare entrepreneur, podcaster, and author of The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. Here to tell his story is Harry Glorikian. Harry, I'm delighted that you've taken the time to speak with me on the podcast. I'm sure that our listeners will find your work and your story really interesting. But let's start with the story. How did you get into healthcare or thinking about healthcare? What's the backstory? So first off, thank you for so much for having me. The backstory. I have been in healthcare for, for since I graduated college. I started out after graduation in pathology. And for those that are listening, that's sort of the study of dead tissue, for lack of a better descriptor, but was on the bleeding edge in an area called immunohistochemistry, which was, if you go back, I think it was the first start of what we call now precision medicine. And then I had my own lab. And then I eventually, after that, I worked at a company called Applied Biosystems, which was the company that did the Human Genome Project. Made the instrumentation, started a company called Celera Genomics, and proud to be part of that, that when, you know, when we published the Human Genome, that was part of it. After that, I started a consulting company by accident, which I grew and then sold to a private equity fund. And since then, I have been starting healthcare companies and spinning them up uh, in my venture capital role. And in the meantime, I've written a number of books about how data and technology will have a profound impact on healthcare and life sciences. It's a long way from immunohistochemistry to to where you are now. Did that happen as an organic growth? Did you suddenly find that the problem itself was as interesting as the technology or what what was the what was the aha moment for you? I, I mean I was very lucky. I've always wherever I've seemed to have worked, we were always on the bleeding edge of some revolutionary change which you take for granted until you look back on it. And, you know, even before I got into healthcare, I was futzing around with computers back in the early days where we were building them by hand. And so I I had a fundamental understanding of data and technology. And then you could see what happened in technology. And then when the United States implemented the Affordable Care Act or the um, Reinvestment and Recovery Act, the amount of money being poured into everybody taking on a electronic medical record really changed how the business was going to be run. And you could see how all of a sudden all this data allowed you to do a lot of things that you couldn't do before. And sensors were getting smaller and 
chips were getting smaller and faster and you could just see the profound impact it was going to have on the space. It's taken me a lot of time to convince people that this is going to happen, but you can see how everything is speeding up and now people can do things that even five years ago was really not possible. Even as simple as, you know, five or six years ago, if you wanted to take your blood pressure, you really needed to go to a nurse that was trained. And now you just put the cuff on, you push a button, and the numbers show up on your phone. You know, tracking your sleep. I had to go to a sleep lab when I got originally diagnosed with sleep apnea. Now, you know, there are a number of wearables that will identify that there's a problem. So the world in the last five to seven years has has dramatically changed, which is not surprising because if you think about the iPhone, it's actually not that old. Yes, agreed. There's a lot of change, technological change. And I agree, even I wear a watch that can tell me my blood pressure and can tell me my oxygen saturation and all the rest of it. The question I have for you is how much difference is that making to our health or are these just gimmicks? What's your perspective? No, I believe that for the individual that chooses to take control of certain parts of their healthcare, it has a profound impact. And I have people that tell me all the time that, oh, you know, my numbers were like this and I made a, a behavioral change. I was wearing a, co- a continuous glucose monitor and I noticed that certain foods really spike me and keep me up and I've altered my diet based on that. You know, my wife is a perfect example. It was clear that if she was having a glass of wine, it was really deteriorating her deep sleep. So she's completely given it up. She's like the sleep is more important to me than that glass of wine at the end of the night. Now, that doesn't mean that if we go to a party or we're on vacation, she won't enjoy what she wants to enjoy, but she understands now the direct consequence based on data of her choices. Whereas before, I think it's sort of like, not, not you know, sort of a guessing game if you had to, to say it that way. So I do believe the technology and the data in front of somebody like a dashboard. I mean, if you see that your if your gas gauge is going to empty, you you know that you should probably stop at the station to refill. People are very familiar with data having a direct impact on their habits. I don't believe that everybody will change their habits. But I think. If you're talking about healthcare, you really don't need a lot to change the dynamics within the system itself. I can see very clearly if you had diabetes, you had a wearable that told you that that particular food item was causing your diabetes to deteriorate. In other words, the blood glucose levels were spiking every time you ate that baklava from your favorite Lebanese restaurant, whatever it happens to be. That would make complete sense. 
But I want to talk about the general generality of people because we are talking here about a sea change in healthcare. And most people will have the data that they're doing something wrong with their lives just by looking in the mirror, at least so we're told. 60 to 80% are now either overweight or obese. And there's no wearable needed to tell us that we're eating too much. What's your take on that? In, in the sense that we already have built-in sensors within our bodies that tell us that things are not right. You're tired, you haven't slept enough, you're eating too much, those trousers are getting tighter, whatever it happens to be. Where does this bridge that gap for people? You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. Speaking for myself and at least the people that I've interacted with, it sort of gives you more day-to-day reminders as opposed to we have a tendency to sort of brush things off. In other words, if I step on my scale and I notice that the trend line is moving in the wrong direction, right? I will immediately within those days try to course correct. If I notice that my sleep pattern is not correct, I try to identify things like, and I've figured out like if I'm even the littlest bit dehydrated, I don't sleep as well, right? So I can make these small corrections where I think if you don't have the data, it's very difficult to understand what's working and what's not for the most part in in some of these dynamics. Blood pressure, as you and I both know, that can sneak up on you and you you wouldn't know it until your visit to the physician where a measurement is made. Now, if you notice your blood pressure is going up, nobody likes to be on medication. So they might actually make that course correction based on their blood pressure whereas other things may not have caused them to make that change. You know as well as I do, you may not know you have an arrhythmia, whereas the device would actually potentially highlight that you have an arrhythmia that can be addressed before it becomes a problem. So I think there are these sorts of early warning indicators or dashboard that the systems can provide an individual You know, my watch pinged me one time and said, have you ever been diagnosed with sleep apnea? And I said, yes. And it said, are you being treated for sleep apnea? And I said, yes. And it said, thank you so much for contributing to our research. But the watch was able to sort of alert me to a potentially, you know, life-threatening disease. And so imagine if everybody that, had sleep apnea that didn't know it was alerted to it, how would that change the comorbidities that we have in all these patients if it's something that they could actually like directly address? Or a CGM that might show you that you're actually moving towards being pre-diabetic and you just didn't even know it. I think most people don't like sticking themselves with a needle. So they might actually make a change in their lifestyle to avoid that consequence. 
there's no question that there are a cohort of people who respond really well to those kind of triggers. And I'm reminded of B.J. Fogg's theory. B.J. Fogg is a professor of psychology at Stanford, and he put it very simply. He said, B, as in our behavior, is a factor of M, A, and T. M is your motivation, A is the ability, and T is the trigger. And what you're talking about there is people who have the motivation and who clearly see that they're able to change a particular behavior can be triggered and are triggered very, very well by the kind of data that you're talking about. I wonder, though, whether there is still a missing piece of the jigsaw in the sense that our ability piece hasn't yet been addressed at a societal level. So if you think about it, you walk down any street here in Melbourne, Australia, and you know I've been to America a few times, whether you go to New York or you go to San Francisco or to LA, every corner there is a junk food shop, there is poor diet, we're addicted to use of our vehicles, huge big cars driving around everywhere, public transport not used very much, people don't walk very much, etc. And hence we have this epidemic of obesity, diabetes, particularly, and there seems to be no end to this. So it's the ability piece that still needs some attention. And I wanted your reflections on that, not in any way decrying what you've said. You certainly, I agree, people are triggered and are triggered effectively when the motivation and ability piece is right. What about the ability piece? Where do we go with this? Yes, so no, I don't disagree. I mean, you know, one of my friends was the former CEO of Pitney Bowes, and he used to always identify food deserts where you just can't find the fresh food or it is unaffordable. That is a tragedy of the system on multiple levels. I still believe, however, that if somebody can make micro adjustments and they have the ability to sort of understand that the cake they're eating every day may not, and if they can make another choice. And I'm not saying that they can, but if they have that opportunity, that information may may cause them to make a change in what they're doing, or at least be aware of the consequences of their actions. Whereas right now, I think if you don't know, people just sort of go along that way and then suffer the consequences and wonder why. I think these devices and the information can be a subtle form of education because you can't see inside your body and they give you a view of what is happening to you. And I give you an example. There's an app that measures the rate of aging. And a number of older people I know downloaded the app. And when they noticed that their rate of aging was increasing, all of a sudden, these older people were like, no, I'm getting old fast enough as it is. I don't need to get older faster. And they started walking more to cause the needle to move in the other direction. So for different individuals, the motivations may be different. If, if you know, we just need to sort of well, hopefully they need to be triggered by something. One could be aging 
one could be diabetes, whatever it is that causes them to then make a subtle change that then improves their life. And it could be pushing off a disease to be a little bit farther. I know a lot of people that do this because they want to perform at their best in their job. And sleeping well and being as healthy as they can gives them an edge in their performance capabilities. So everybody does it for a different reason. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. The motivation piece is really interesting because, as you say, those old people that you talked about who didn't want to get older faster, the professionals who recognize that they're on a trajectory to chronic ill health will be triggered and triggered very effectively because they've got things in place. But for many of us, that hasn't quite happened yet. But I want to introduce the other side of this to you. And that is to say that the world, in fact, has changed and changed dramatically in the last two years. In the sense that suddenly that source of advice that was available to us a lot of the time, as in our family doctors and uh, the healthcare system generally, was under an enormous amount of strain. And Mm -hmm. we had a growing interest in self-care. People were beginning to think about where they could get that advice. We had telehealth, etc., but it wasn't the whole story, of course. Mm -hmm. Patient advocacy groups started to burgeon. People were turning to others saying, no, I've got this problem, what can I do about it? And there, the ability piece is being addressed. And here is the scope for your triggers to really make a difference. Do you want to comment on that? The pandemic has fundamentally changed people's perception of the area. I also believe that the pandemic pulled forward many of these technologies by at least five years, because where the system was pushing back on some of these things during the pandemic, it was almost like the system needed these things to continue to provide these services. My biggest fear is we don't slide backwards. So I've been a family doctor for more than 30 years. And in the years that I've been a family doctor, I've been to many, many conferences. And the conferences that I would attend today are identical to the conferences that I was attending when I first started. The same questions are being asked repeatedly. And you find that academics do make a career out of answering the same question again and again, albeit changing the, the word slightly. You saw an abstract at a conference today, you just have to change the names of the top two names of the people who had gone before and you would, you would basically be back where you were. What you're saying and what society is now saying is, what difference does this make to me and my life today? What difference will this make to the outcomes How can this improve the outcomes, as in the research that you're doing? Now, as an investor, how do you see yourself positioned in a world where we are going to need to make rapid progress 
so the research actually leads to an outcome. If you were one of the original investors in Moderna, you saw a profound impact to the world, right? We were involved in sequencing. When we sequenced SARS, if you remember, it took us three months to sequence SARS. When we sequenced COVID, we did it in 48 hours. Profound time difference. Within 48 hours of sequencing it, we had the first vaccines we were going to try and test. So in four days, we went from sequence to drug. That is only possible by the investments and the opportunities that we see going forward. Many of the monitoring technologies, something as, and I want, I'll say simple, although it's a very elegant technology, the Apple Watch, can help someone if they fell, where it will alert someone that the individual has fallen. There's a great story about a gentleman who got on his bike, went for a ride, went over a hill, fell. The watch noticed he wasn't moving. It called 911, and because of the GPS, they were able to find him. The second trigger was it was programmed to call his son. So that technology was able to make a profound difference in that individual's life. That's where I see like you're seeing almost a, for at the individual level, an almost immediate payback. But there are some other technologies like there's one called Propeller Health, which is a asthma device with a GPS chip in it that would tell people before you go out, by the way, the weather outside is bad, the smog or the pollution, take a puff before you go out. And what we saw was a dramatic decrease in the emergency room visits because the person could get ahead of it rather than have an asthma attack and end up in the hospital. So we are seeing health economic impacts as well as your quality of life impact on a day-to-day basis. My biggest concern a lot of times is I'm not sure that the physicians are being armed with the right information to be able to embrace some of these technologies. Like I remember, I, I, I don't know what the number is now, but how much genomics teaching did they do in med school? And I remember like not that long ago, it was six hours. Genomics is now fundamental to prescribing many different types of medication. So these are the sorts of things that I think that the system, the old system maybe needs to catch up with so that the people who are on the front lines are armed with the right information to be able to help that patient. I also believe that if they don't do that, the technology is getting simple enough that the average individual can be armed. I mean, another example that I'll give you is there's a ultrasound system that will tell the individual doing the ultrasound, move a little up, move a little to the right, move down, move a little to the left. The AI system will evaluate the image. And until it's perfect, it will keep telling the person to sort of move around to produce an image that's equivalent to someone that's trained 
in how to do that ultrasound. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I agree with you. I think medical education and the way that we arm our clinicians to respond to their patients is going to have to change and change very, very rapidly. Some of these technologies that you're mentioning are, are news to me, and I've been a doctor for some years. You're talking about <laughs> technologies like the pro Propeller Health and you know, technologies that would help monitor an older person without being intrusive in the sense of triggers it when the person is immobile on the ground. And goodness knows we all would want somebody to come to our help in that situation. So where to from here? How do you see the world that you inhabit is a world where you are seeing all these innovations being produced. You're funding some of these innovations. You're talking about them. How do we change the system? Or do we change the system? Or do you think patients will change the system? Well, I, I can speak not, not knowing the system where you are well enough. The change that has occurring here has been mainly driven by a financial shift, right? Paying for outcomes as opposed for fee for service. And if you're paying for outcomes, you're being six sigma is really important, right? Because you need you're only going to get paid if I get if I do something correct. And so you almost have to adopt measurement capabilities to understand, I did that and it went well. I did that and it maybe didn't go as well as I would have liked. So you're optimizing for a better outcome in a sense. So we're seeing that. The other thing that we're seeing is these technologies lend themselves to modifications of the existing business model. Can I make modifications to provide a better service or provide that service in a sort of different way than I had before? And it's having a profile. So in other words, the Apple phone allowing you to carry your medical record on that phone because of the HL7 standard was the biggest trigger that caused the EMR companies to start thinking about interoperability more. So a consumer company drove a fundamental change within the system itself. So you're seeing outside force, an, an external force of competition being pushed upon the existing system that's causing it to react and change to be more competitive. So all of these forces have been changing the dynamics on the ground. I mean, we still have, <laughs> it's not moving fast enough, but we are seeing some fundamental shifts. I always say that from a policy perspective, the policymakers actually have the greatest impact on how quickly the shifts can happen within the system. It's the one thing they have trouble embracing is 
they need to almost be ahead of the technology and it's difficult for them to do that. Uh, but I, I implore them to, to get ahead of the technology because it's moving faster than any, than you could possibly keep up with. For me, I guess the challenge is and always has been that healthcare has one goal, which is to keep people healthy and well. The other industries that have equal influence on our policymakers, whether that's the food industry, whether it's alcohol, whether it's entertainment, have very different outcomes in mind. And of course, there is a unhealthy competition there for the policymakers' attention. And often that means it's driven so that we end up where we are at the moment, which is where, as we say, there are food deserts in most of our cities where people cannot afford to buy good food because the junk food market is so lucrative. I've seen these places being set up opposite health centers. It's unbelievable, but it happens. Yes. So whereas the vision that you're presenting is a very appealing one, where we have more control, we have agency, we're able to look after ourselves better and, are, and working very much in, in tandem with our healthcare providers. The reality is quite different at the moment. How are we going to bridge that? How do we get policymakers to see the light? I think if policymakers looked at the population as an economic imperative, that means that the healthier population is more productive and therefore has a direct economic impact on everybody. I think that's when you see the biggest mind shift in a policymaker. It's when we look at it as a social problem that we're not making the optimal decisions. I mean, healthier people, it's a lower cost healthcare system. It's a lower burden to the system. They're productive for a longer period of time. They actually generate a larger level of economics. So I think it's a, that perspective needs to be impacted. And I think that's where you'll see the biggest change. I, I really wish that I could have some sort of influence on people's thinking in that way, but it's been very difficult to to cause people to look at things through a different lens. And, and I think everybody would benefit, including themselves, if they actually looked at it that way. That's a refreshingly honest answer, and thank you for that. But I'm going to put you in the, in the headlights again and say, it's now 2030. And the world that I have lived for the last 30 years where I can say, look, I go to conferences and I hear the same things, is not a world that I want to see. What do you want to see in the conferences of 2030? So the things I'd like to see are things like much more data analytics and computer science playing um, a larger role in the discussions at these conferences where you're seeing a melding of these two. And then the health economic outcomes, of course, of 
these technologies and approaches that we're having. But I do fundamentally believe that the technology companies are going to push faster and harder than you would see on the traditional medical side. Now, if you think about it, right, the Apple Watch and the Fitbit and these other devices have more real-world data on patients than any actual medical device company because they play in the health and wellness space. And when they see their technology being able to cross the chasm, they selectively pick something that they can get regulatory approval for. That doesn't mean that they stopped gathering millions and millions of people data. So you can see that as they're slowly moving into that space, they can have a profound impact on those individuals' lives. So the conferences need to keep an eye on the technology players to understand how they're making that migration or one is going to eat the other's lunch through certain business models. So I think the, the entire conference area needs to change and broaden its view of this. I, I, and I know some people would argue with me, where's the clinical trial? And the examples that I give people is, you know, the technology might not have done as well as you like today, but within 12 months, that technology has gone through three revolutions of change and what it did a year ago is not what it's going to do a year later and that's where i see the big profound impacts coming from if you look at google as an example they wrote a paper in ophthalmology saying diabetic retina we can take a picture of your eye and basically diagnose you with diabetic retinopathy and i remember my ophthalmology friend saying that's just one disease. 12 months later, they published the next paper that said, we can do 50 diseases with the exact same platform. It's a stepwise change. And we need to incorporate these into these conferences. Maybe we have a part of the conference that says, these are the early stage things. They're not completely proven out. But you know what? You might want to be aware of it because 12 months from now, that sensor or that algorithm may have been profoundly improved to make that change. And then we'll begin to see what certainly the physicians would like to see and what patients would like to see, which is real world change, real difference in outcomes for all of us. And the payoff, as you say, is economic because healthier people will retire later They'll work longer, they'll pay taxes, they will contribute to the economy and all the benefits that go with that, apart from the fact that we will be feeling better and be more creative as a society. Harry, it's been a joy speaking with you today. I have really enjoyed our conversation. I think what you are talking about is visionary and it's been a great privilege having the honor of spending time with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at 
journalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>